We might ask a question, why is there a church at all in the year 2020? And I don't mean Christ Presbyterian Church or the church in Santa Barbara. I mean, globally, why would there be a church in the year 2020? How did a little tiny group of disciples uh, end up flourishing to the extent that the Christian faith is the number one global religion? How did that happen? I arrived to start from the University of Washington the sociologist, he wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. And he asked the question that I just asked, but he asks it as a sociologist. And in a word, it's a great book, I would commend it to you, but in a word, his answer is, well, the church grew because people got converted. And then that brings the second question, right? Why did people get converted? And Rodney Stark in his research says they became converted in large part because the church was acting like the church. And let me explain. The, the Roman world was very brutish, hostile, hard place to live. Uh, women were not treated well. And the church treated women well. Marriage was a very harsh institution and husbands would divorce their wives on a whim. And the church began to teach husbands a revolutionary thought. You, you need to love your wife. And so marriages and families flourished in the church. There was a plague in the second century uh, after Christ. Uh, it's estimated that between 25 and 33 percent of the Roman world died of smallpox within about a 15-year period. And when family members got smallpox, generally their family would just flee. They would leave the person to die and they would run. Not in the church. The church began to care for their sick and not only for their own sick, but for other people as well. And so the church flourished. Uh, little baby girls were oftentimes exposed on the streets because families wanted boys. And the church uh, brought them in and raised them as their own. Well, you can see this, this kind of generational healthfulness that the church had. And people were attracted to it because it was a great place to be. In other words, the church experienced the depth of being cared for in a community. Far from perfect. No, they weren't perfect. But, but think about that against the backdrop of what we would call the American church, where millions of Christians, hear this, millions of Christians believe that the church is a place that you go to. And so we say to one another, what church do you go to? Well, I go to such and such a church. And the church is reduced to a Sunday morning service, or in our case, a Sunday afternoon service that you attend as opposed to being understood as a people to whom you are committed to one another and to Christ. And so we begin to think of the church as an institution where there are services provided. Sometimes there's good coffee and there's children's ministries and so on, as opposed to thinking of the church as a group of committed disciples into which we are grafted. The church, hear this, is not a place to which we go. It is not a community that we create on our own. It's not a group of people that have like-minded interests and hobbies. It's not even a group of people that like the volume of the worship music to be a certain level. Hear this, this, is, this will surprise you a little bit. It's not even built on racial similarity or racial diversity. Rather, the church is a community united 
by Christ, held together by Christ, consumed with a love for Christ, committed to the glory of Christ, patiently waiting for the return of Christ. Now through your uh, the veil of your face mask, can you say amen to that? Yeah, a little louder for me? Oh, good, good, good. I like that. Well, the, the, the main point that I want us to get out of this passage from Ephesians is that the church is not a place, it is a people. It's not a place where we go, it is a people to which we belong. We're, we're taking some weeks as a church here to talk about church unity. And it's so, oh my, my, my. Do you want me to start over? No, you're good, you're good. Uh, it, it's so important that we understand the nature of the church, which we hope is unified. All right, we're going to look at Ephesians real quickly. And we're going to look at three paragraphs. First, we're going to look at the problem. Second, the provision. And third, the product. What's the problem? Look at your Bibles. Look at verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 2. The problem, in a word, is alienation. Paul talks about these Gentiles in the flesh versus the people that call themselves the circumcision. Now, the sad truth of first century Judaism is that Jews hated Gentiles. What's a Gentile, by the way? From the Jewish perspective, there were only two kinds of people. There were Jews and everybody else. So if you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile, okay? And the Jews hated the Gentiles, and generally the Gentiles returned the favor. So you have a real hostile situation, and when you bring that into the church, some of the friction was still there. Now Paul, if you look at verses 11 and 12, he talks about the Gentiles' alienation, spiritual alienation from God and from God's people. Look what he says. Separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, Strangers to the covenants, no hope without God in the world. I mean, that, that's a, a, a destitute situation there. Such is the darkness of life without God. By the way, even the architecture in the temple in Jerusalem reflected this alienation. In Jerusalem, the temple was basically a, a series of concentric rectangles, and the inner part was the Holy of Holies, and then the Holy Place, and that was reserved for the priesthood. And then the next court was reserved for Jewish men, and the next court was the court of the women, and Jewish women could go there. But eventually you came to a little wall about this high, and outside of that wall was called the Court of the Gentiles. And so if you weren't Jewish, you could go into that outer court. But if you hopped over the wall and went into the temple, well, you did so with a threat of being put to death. That was the alienation. The alienation of Jew from Gentile. Well, let's go on. Let's look at the provision. Look at verse 13. Very simple. The provision that God makes for this alienation is nothing less than what? Blood. The blood of Christ. Now, in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles who were once far off have been brought near. How? Through the, say it for me, blood of Christ. Verse 16, Paul goes on to say the hostility between the two was killed on the cross. Both Jew and Gentile, Paul wants us to see, both and everybody in this gathering this afternoon, we all come to God in the same way, through the blood of Christ. 
And the unity that we experience, verse 18, is modeled on the triune God. I've been a pastor a long time, and I get asked from time to time, show me one verse where every member of the Trinity is mentioned. Well, you want it? Look at verse 18. Through him, through Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. Now watch this. No person, no re-education program, no sensitivity training, no book called Jewish Fragility broke down the animosity of Jew to Gentile. It just didn't happen. What did was the blood of Christ. Christ broke down in his flesh, Paul tells us, the dividing wall of hostility. And the church at that moment becomes one. Now, notice and enjoy the shock, the beauty of this passage. You who were once far off, alienated from God, separated from the commonwealth of Israel, you've been brought near. Near to what? Near to the people of God and near to God himself. That's the work of Christ. Now, we often speak of the death of Christ as the event that reconciles sinful men and women, sinful boys and girls, to God himself, right? We know that language. But Paul expands our horizons here, and he says, not only does Christ reconcile us to the Father, he reconciles us to one another. That is the basis of our unity as a church. We don't create unity, we enjoy it. Because God did it. He himself is our peace, verse 14. He made us both one. He broke down the dividing wall of hostility. Now, do you see it? Unity in the church and the people of God is blood-bought. The blood of Christ changes everything. It bring, Hear this, it's so important. It brings people together who otherwise would possibly be bitter enemies. Or maybe not even know each other. The blood of Christ reconciles husbands to wives who are having a difficult time. The blood of Christ reconciles friends who have had a falling out. The blood of Christ reconciles sons to fathers, daughters to mothers, daughters to fathers, daughters to mothers. The blood of Christ reconciles blacks to whites, Serbians to Croatians, Costa Ricans to Nicaraguans, Hutus to Tutsis, Guatemalans to Mexicans, Republicans to Democrats, vegans to those who like to go to In-N-Out Burger. He himself is our peace. And that's a little phrase that is so big that we can crawl into it and live for the rest of our lives. In Christ, we find a place to belong, not only to God, but to one another. So the problem is alienation. The provision is the blood of Christ. What's the product? Well, that last paragraph from verses 19 to 22 the product is a unified church, no longer aliens and strangers, but now fellow citizens, members of the household of God. 
Now, we might ask, does this matter? I mean, isn't church about going to a service and wearing a mask and celebrating the Lord's Supper and keeping social distance and then going home? If we think like that, we have missed the entire point of the work of Christ with regard to one another. Members of the household of God. That's mind-blowing. That'll blow our minds if we think about it. Get, you know what that means? That means that Christ Presbyterian Church is not Kyle's church. Hey, they're on vacation. We can say whatever we want. <laughs> Christ Presbyterian Church is not Kyle's and Joshua's church. Christ Presbyterian Church is not Kyle's and Joshua's and the elders' church. Get this. Christ's Presbyterian Church is not even our church. The church belongs to Christ. And there's a yearning in everybody here this afternoon to be inside, to be a part of something, to be welcomed. And that yearning finds fulfillment in the triune God of the Bible who places us into his people and into himself. Now, the passage just keeps building and building, and I want you to see the kicker in the last two verses. Look at verse 21 and 22. Paul moves in two directions almost simultaneously, and it just is shocking. In verse 21, Paul says, you are, you're a growing temple as a people of God who lives, it's a metaphor, lives in God. Okay? With me? That's what it says. It's in, it's in your text. He said, all right, we, we as the church, we're, we're becoming a temple and we're going to live in God. And just to where we think, man, that is so good, I can't believe it. Paul is not done. Look at verse 22. He goes in exactly the opposite direction. He says, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What? Not only do we become a people of God to live in God, God has prepared us as a dwelling place for Himself. Wow! So, if you were to ask a Jew in the first century, hey, tell me where God lives, you would likely have, been to, uh, have heard the answer, well, uh, God lives in heaven, but if you really want to know where he lives around here, he lives in Jerusalem, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. That's what you would have heard. And if you ask an American evangelical, hey, tell me where God lives, more than likely you're going to hear the answer, well, God lives in heaven. And that's true. You get partial credit for that answer. But again, look at verse 22. What does it say? God has prepared us to be a dwelling for himself. And God does not want to live in a disunited house. So when I was in fourth grade, my best friend was a guy named Bobby Comstock. And I doubt, I've never seen him since fourth grade because I moved. But he, were, he and I were buds. And so, Bobby, if you're listening to this, hi. But... Uh, Bobby and I were best friends, and one day I went to Bobby's house, and I saw something that I had never seen in my life. 
And I'm, I, I've never told this story, but I can still remember it vividly. I was in Bobby's living room, and his mom and dad were home, and they got into a fight unlike anything I had ever seen in my life. I grew up in a very loving home. I'd never seen a fight whatsoever. And this couple is just south of violence. They're swearing at each other, and they're turning red, and it was a horrible experience. That's a lot of years ago for me. You know what? Bobby and I remained friends, but I never went back to his house, ever. I never wanted to see that again. God is preparing us to be a people in which he lives. And in the same way that I never wanted to go to this divided house, God does not want to come and dwell with the people who are divided. He has made us one, and it's our privilege. It's our privilege to live out the unity that he has created. Do you see why unity is so vital, so important? Now, I love what Kyle taught last week, and so I might as well say it again, right? Unity will sometimes be difficult. It's true. Unity will sometimes be costly. Unity will sometimes compel us to swallow our pride. Unity will force us to do things that we don't always enjoy. It won't always be easy. And if you think about the New Testament, much of the New Testament is written to church churches that are struggling with unity. Paul says to the Galatian church, he says, you know, be careful that you don't bite and devour one another, because if you do, you will consume one another. Or to Romans, the Roman church had the same problem, Jew to Gentile. And at the end, chapter 15, he says, uh, as far as it, as it is possible, live peaceably with everyone, which implies that it's kind of hard. And as we go forward as a church, unity will sometimes be very enjoyable and sometimes it will be kind of hard. And as Kyle taught last week, he, he taught that the people that you need to be united with the most of the people you're sitting on a blanket with. Your family, your friends, your roommates. It's imperative that we reconcile one to another. And you might say the next circle of unity in the church is, well, the next circle would be our community groups. We get to know each other a little bit better in our community groups, and we know how to pray for each other. And, and if we, it's not so much true on Zoom, but it, you know, when we get back together in person, sooner or later we're going to rub each other a little bit the wrong way. Right? No, don't say right. But it's imperative that we strive for the unity that God has created in our community groups. And you might say the next bigger circle of unity that's imperative for us is the unity of Christ Presbyterian Church. This is church life. We find ourselves in the same church, and that is really good, We've made a commitment to one another. And by the way, if I could just buttress something that Kyle said last week, uh, some of us in this gathering need to join and become members of the church. Lisa and I, my wife and I, we last year, this Sunday last year, we came to Christ Press in the morning service, and uh, we went home, and we've been visiting around, and we thought, we've got to make a decision. And we were eating tortillas for lunch, and we just said, let's make a decision. I said, what do you want? She said, what do you want? And I said, what do you want? I, what do you want? And we just kind of went back and forth. I said, let's go to be a part of 
Christ present. So we signed up, and here we are. You're stuck with me. And I'm stuck with you. Isn't that great? Church membership is kind of like, but not exactly like a marriage, where we make a commitment one to another, and we say, man, we're going to go through life together. And, and I just want to encourage those of you who are, who are kind of dangling at the edges, jump in. If this is your church, jump in. One of the many benefits of, of church membership is you know that your family is committed to you and you are committed to them. Well, the next larger circle, and with this I'm just about done, is the larger circle of the church in Santa Barbara. Christ Presbyterian Church, we are not alone. We are one with many Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches in this community. And we need to be praying for them and asking God that we could be a blessing to other churches. Because the unity of the church, well, so much is at stake. Jesus says in John 13 that the world will judge the, the veracity of our faith by how we love one another. And in Ephesians 2, Paul says God wants to live in us. So how imperative that we are one together. The church is not a place. It is a people. It's not a place that you go, but it's a people to which you belong. Amen.